We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. Uh, this is the Southampton away in Bournemouth at home podcast. Um, apologies for the delay of the podcast. It's been a few days late, but it's been Christmas. Give us a break, you know? People have been drinking, eating, away with family and so on and so forth. It's been very hard to get everyone together, but at least we're here eventually. That's what matters in the end. Um, so... I'm going to hand you over to um, Paul, Elliot and Tim to discuss the uh, the games. And um, I'll be back again after the Newcastle match. Until then. Ho, ho, ho. It's a festive Arsenal Vision post-match podcast coming to you just following Christmas and Boxing Day and just before the new year. A chance to reflect on being top of the table, a fantastic home win and another brilliant Mesodozal masterclass. <laughs> Who am I kidding? Let's talk injuries, transfers, and the loss at Southampton. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. The men who are going to attempt to derail my negativity train are Tim and Paul. They are here. Happy, Mary and all that jazz. Tim, you can find him at Stilberto on Twitter and on Arsblog. How are you? I'm all good. Thank you. Good. Yeah. Enjoying being top of the table at the end of the year? Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to attending the Open Top Bus Parade. Yeah, uh, in Islington, uh, getting some T-shirts printed up, mm-hmm. uh, and generally getting really carried away with it all. Well, let's see if I can wipe that smug grin off your face digitally uh, and remotely. Uh, but no, I, I would love to join you for an open top bus parade, um, especially anywhere but where I am right now, where we got six inches of snow and it's freezing cold. Uh, Paul is somewhat in the same condition I am weather-wise, although probably feeling a lot more upbeat about Arsenal. 
You can find Paul at Posnan in my pants on Twitter and read his blog when it comes out occasionally because it's usually excellent when it does. Uh, Paul, hello, hello. Uh, and, and your wife got six inches too last night. <laughs> so that uh, joke yeah. seems a lot more sensible in the context of how we used it off air um, <laughs> than, than the way you used it there. Um, Sorry. It, it, let's put it this way. It's related to snow and not related to Paul buggering my wife. Oh, oh maybe it's both. Um <laughs> Anyway, hello, Paul. Just the podcast, oh, so. Okay, I got, I got my money's worth here. Thanks very much, everybody. I'm off. Thankfully, my baby looks a lot like me. Otherwise, there'd be questions asked. Um, okay, look, here's what I want to do. The game's happened. They're coming thick and fast right now. I don't think it makes sense to go into a deep, deep dive on each game. I think we should handle each one a little bit, some of the major talking points from them, then a little bit about what we just thought of the play generally, where the team's headed, maybe some transfer stuff and what we see coming in the new year. Chance to sort of hit pause, take stock, and uh, voice our expectations. So unless you guys have any uh, burning desire to go into a detailed minute-by-minute analysis of either of these two matches, uh, does that sound like a decent plan for you guys? Yeah, that works for me. Cool. All right, Paul, start with you really quickly. Uh, It was a hammering uh, at St. Mary's, a ground that we probably should just not go to anymore. Our last performance that was that poor was arguably the one we had there. A lot of people have said it, but it's, I think it's pretty true. Just generally for you, what went wrong at St. Mary's that you saw in the macro sense? What, what wasn't working that caused things to go that poorly? Yeah. Um, good question. So I think certain matchups suit certain teams. Um, and we suit Southampton. Um, I think the game last year, uh, which served as a marker for us, also served as a strong remi- You know, they really needed this game. They needed a big performance. Apparently, uh, Koeman gave them a hell of a speech. He could probably rally around what they did to us last year. Um, they played this like a cup final. Every now and then, there's going to be a game like this where their energy levels are just at a level beyond ours. I think ours... Uh, I mean, I think we came to play. I think in most circumstances, we would, we would have done okay. But they were like a freight train. I mean, they were physical. They were on us. They did what we like least, which is pressing us. And pressing, you know, very often pressing centre-backs, full-backs, midfield. I mean, they they hung it out there, and it it came off for them. Um, they had, I mean, they deserved the win. Uh, they ser- deserved at least a couple of goals, but they also had plenty of good luck at the right time in terms of the goals to ki- to kind of kill the game off, especially that second goal. Because a game like that, our best chance is that they come at us for 70 minutes and then they run out of puff. Uh, but they pretty much had their two goals at that point. So... It was our legs that felt the tiredness. And I think it was just one of those games, a bit like that first West Ham game. I never get any agreement on this, but the first West Ham game of the season was us still coming up to speed while they were at full, pretty much at full strength after playing 5-6 Champions League quali- or Euro- Europa League qualifiers, qualifiers during the summer. They fancied that game. It was at home for them. This was at home for Southampton. You know, every now and then you're going to run into one of those games. I also think if you look at something, you know, you look at a basketball series and you watch, you know, in Jordan's heyday, 
when the Bulls played Utah and they played each other in the finals and it was the best of seven. You know, the, it was Jordan, it was the Bulls, it was Scottie Pippen against Malone and Stockton. And the Utah Jazz would still go toe-to-toe till the end. So, you know, you come up against a team that has a good matchup against you. They got their, their home court advantage. They got the energy high. They got a stirring speech. I think that's what Southampton was. I mean, we were, yeah. we're always going to be a little vulnerable because it's a Flamini Ramsey midfield. I think it was really, and I think they've done really well. I think Flamini's done really well. I think he even did really well in that game defensively. But it was interesting in that game how often the pass was on for Flamini and they passed it around him, like Coquelin in the early days, where they just didn't use him. Now, Bournemouth was a different game, but they did use Callum Chambers as a distributing DM, and they avoided Flamini almost at all costs at one stage, and I think that really hurt us. Um, and so, for me, those were the biggest factors in the games. I think it was just one of those games, and you look at these four games or so over the Christmas break as almost like a basketball series where you're not playing the same team, but you're playing four games and you're not going to win them all. And if we win the Newcastle game, we should be pretty happy. And yeah, you, you probably shouldn't lose 4-0, but I, I, I take your point. I, I'll say one thing in defense of Arsenal, and then I'm going to uh, rip the team to shreds. So the defense of Arsenal is Southampton got a very, very fortunate opening goal. And it, it was obviously an incredible, incredible shot. Um, there was arguably an offside in the buildup. Some of the goals they got could have been chalked off for various fouls and other uh, infractions. But for us, over the past year or two, we have not been very good playing from behind. The first goal has been very important for us. Um, and them getting an opening goal meant sit a little deeper, counterattack a little more, draw us out, and it really played to their strength and our weakness. Tim, for me, I saw two things here that I didn't love. And I'll tie them together, and, and then you can tell me if you vehemently disagree with me, which I, I assume you will because you're a level-headed individual. Um, so with the Ramsey-Flamini Ramsey axis, Flamini loves to get up the pitch. He loves to run beyond the forwards. He wants to get near the box where he's most effective. He leaves a lot of space in behind. What I saw against Southampton was a, a midfield pushed higher up the pitch, fullbacks once again pushed higher up the pitch, and yet not energetically pressing when we lost the ball. And so we got killed in transitions. Because when we lost the ball, we stood off them enough that they could play balls into the space in behind and, and let their players run in behind. And it reminded me, unfortunately, a little bit of the way we were playing when we were leading the league in 2013-14 and then had those hammerings at Anfield, at Chelsea, at Everton, where we would get caught in possession with the midfield and the fullbacks pushed up the pitch, not pressure in transitions and, and get caught in behind. Did you see anything that reminded you of that or do you have a different take on it? Yeah, a little bit. I think um, I think a couple of points have already been made. First of all, we struggle a lot with teams that press us very hard. It's, it's a tactic we really can't cope with. If you look at... Um, I'm not going to go into this too much because I'm planning to write about it for my column this week. But there Spoilers. Is a, <laughs> this is a big spoiler. There is an almost inverse proportionality between Arsenal's possession stats and their performances. Um, our lowest possession stats this season, Manchester United, Bayern Munich, Manchester City. Stop me if there's a theme emerging here. Probably our worst performances this season, um, Norwich, Sheffield Wednesday. 
um, Southampton, West Ham, Dynamo Zagreb. We had a lot of the ball in those games. Um, and actually, in a very weird turn of events, Arsenal have become better at playing without the ball than with it. And we really like playing teams where we can sit off. Um, but Southampton wasn't that type of game, and it never is. And what's slightly concerning is if you look at our next six away games, we've got Klopp's They're Liverpool. horrifying. Klopp's Liverpool, Anfield, what do they like to do? We've got yeah. Stoke, well, we know what, what they like to do. We've got Eddie Howe's Bournemouth, who work incredibly hard at home um, in particular. We've got Pochettino Spurs, and we've got Martinez, Martinez's Everton. Um, those are all of those teams kind of share a tactic, and it's one that we don't really enjoy. I'm going to um, go out and, and say that the Everton Arsenal match might be one for the neutrals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It could, it Six could five, well maybe. Um, and the other thing, as you pointed out, is we went one nil down. And again, if you look at the stats, it's just it's almost absolutely uncanny how we win games when we're one nil up and we don't get anything when we go one nil down. And actually, the first kind of 25 minutes of this game I, I didn't think Southampton were very impressive at all I didn't think we were either I thought both teams looked I think we looked tired because we couldn't rotate the team and it was a little bit of a game too far Southampton looked a bit nervy but once they got that goal um, it really put a spring in their step the thing that I didn't like that I was really really annoyed about during the game um, it, you know, I was inside the stadium. It was really, really windy. The conditions were very difficult. And um, Southampton made that work for them because, you know, having someone like Shane Long up front who was up, you know, Mertesacker and Koscielny's backsides, the second the ball was anywhere near them, it's very difficult. I was watching Southampton knock the ball around and their, their defence, and I use that term very loosely, they couldn't put three passes together. And that was under no pressure. They were struggling to control the ball. They turned it over a lot without us going anywhere near them. And I think Arsenal failed to adapt to that. There should have been a point where somebody should have realised, well, do you know what? We're getting pushed really, really hard. They're forcing us into errors. You know, this is a really horrible game. The pitch wasn't very good. It was very bumpy, very, very windy inside the stadium. Someone should have realised look, the game we're trying to play is not going to work. And actually what we should have concentrated on was forcing Southampton into errors. And we had players out there like Walcott, like Joel Campbell, who are quick, who work hard, um, who should have been putting pressure on Southampton when they had possession. Because I'm convinced we'd have got some joy because they were struggling to pass the ball with absolutely no pressure. So under a bit of pressure, I think we could have forced the turnover in the final third in, in the manner that they kept doing. Um, but we didn't really do it. We didn't really look like we could adapt our game. Um, and that, you know, that, that I think was really the story of the game. Um, I think 4-0 was a little bit harsh. We got slightly unlucky on a couple of goals. And also, at this time of year, what you find is that once a team goes 2-0 down, there are no comebacks happen at this time of year because everybody knows they've got another game in two or three days. And if you're 2-0 down, you think, well, there's really no point in chasing this anymore because we've got another game in less than 48 hours that we can win. Um, and so you find this kind of thing happens a lot. And um, I'm not into football betting, but I looked at... I, I, I said to a couple of people, a couple of my friends on the way to the game yesterday, if I was, I would have put a lot of money on Southampton losing to West Ham mm. because of the amount of effort they put in. And what did they do? They, they were 1-0 up at half-time and then... 
just completely lost it because they put a lot in um, against Arsenal. And I think maybe they were a bit, not silly, but in the last 20 minutes, really, the game should have just completely petered out. But Southampton kept going for it and obviously it got them a big win. But I think if they'd have conserved their energy a bit in the last 20 minutes and taken the 2-0 win, they might have got something against West Ham as well. But, um, you know, that's not really our concern. Our concern is we struggle to cope with the, this type of game and we've potentially got a few of them coming up. Yeah. I, see, I, I think we just made it very easy for them and you can't have it both ways. You can't have eight of your outfield players in their half if you're not committed to aggressively pressing them when they get the ball to get it back. Um, because you make it way too easy, especially when one of your center backs is Murtisacker, to play into the space behind you. Um, you know, and, and to be fair, City did that. They they did that against us. They didn't convert it, um, and there weren't as many opportunities. And you know, I think we were a little more careful and circumspect in the way we played against City. But we did see De Bruyne get through and Bellerin racing back. And I thought Murtisacker got his positioning pretty right, and so did Czech and. And De Bruyne missed his shot. But we, we have seen, I think, a little too much recently players running free behind our back four. We saw it against Bournemouth, too. Yeah. You have to forgive me for remem- not remembering the... Josh uh, King. King, thank you. Yeah, I mean, he completely free in behind the back four. Because you make that pass just too easy to play. Um, when everybody's pushed up, you have one pretty, pretty slow, desperately slow cent- central defender... And no pressure on the ball. And I just think we're going to get killed if we play that way. And we saw that in 2014 when we did get killed. Several away grounds playing high up the pitch and not putting pressure on the ball when we lost it. And we, we were just getting destroyed in transitions. The Bournemouth game, I mean, it was a better scoreline, obviously. The first half, or at least the first half hour or so, pretty tough to watch which is to be expected a little bit when you, A, have a game in 46 hours and, B, don't really have a way to rotate the squad. Um, I'll stay with you, Tim, so you can get the first words on this just really quickly. The first half, um, not a lot of fluency and not a lot of penetration. Worth analyzing or really just a game where anything you can get from it, you're thankful because it's two games in 46 hours? Uh, I, I think mainly the latter, um, but again, it just showed you the importance of the first goal because, um, you know, I, I don't talk about, a lot about standards of games in this in this kind of podcast quite a lot. Um, I think Arsenal only really played well for about half an hour, 40 minutes against Bournemouth, um, and it was all they needed to do, and I think it was a smart way to play it, really. Um, and in Mesut Ozil, we just had a player who produced pretty much every single good moment um, his highlights reel was the highlights reel, if you know what I mean. Um, but I mean, that, that last kind of 15, 20 minutes of the first half after we went 1 0 up, you know, we looked like a team transformed. And then there was a bit of a lull. And then we got the second goal and we looked good for, you know, kind of 15 minutes after that. And, and it was enough because I think Bournemouth had, had a fairly hard game against Crystal Palace and put a lot into it. And. You know, I think, like I said, once they went behind, it's the same thing. You kind of take a decision, really. Um, and they, they just didn't really look like they had it in us to, had it in them to hurt us. Um, I, I do think it's a game that doesn't bear an awful lot of analysis, um, at this time of year. I think you just, you take what you can get and you move on, really. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, the one thing that worried me, and Paul, I want to get your thoughts on this. The last 20 minutes of that game or so, they really opened us up a lot, and the game got very open and stretched, and they created chances. I mean, I've been saying all season that I'm not concerned about our defending and that if we don't win the title, it'll be because we don't have the goals to win the title. But the last few games, there's been some issues, and I you know, I wonder if it's a correlation with what's happening in our midfield. Um, are you concerned about the way we finished that game and, and the fact that Bournemouth did seem able to open, open us up so easily? Uh, well, not really. Um, I mean, we do play with the high line. We do play a risk-reward thing. You are going to get some tired legs over four games. This is the third game. We made four changes, and by the end of that game, we'd made a couple more. Um, inter- I, I guess we brought on Monreal, who was maybe uh, undoing one of our changes by removing Gibbs. And I'd kind of like to get our... Uh, so I hadn't been following the football too closely over the Christmas breaks. So, like, for this game, I just turned on the game literally as it started and found we'd made four changes, which I know in another team would make a lot of sense. I was kind of a little taken aback uh, just because I'm so used to your 11 showing up. I thought it was a really interesting series of changes. I'd love to get you guys' opinion on why we made the changes we did. I mean, Monreal, Gibbs. Well, you have 46 hours, right? You you have to make some changes. But why those four? Now I know we've only a certain number, only a bench because we don't have anyone else. <laughs> I know, but Gabriel yeah. for Koscielny, I thought was very interesting, given that you could argue. I mean, I mean, I thought Koscielny in many ways still did pretty well against Southampton, even though he was involved in a lot of those situations. Uh, you know, the the ugly highlight reel. Well, what, wasn't there a rumor he was carrying a little knocked him? You might. No, it was a calf I, thing or whatever it was. I think pretty much all of the changes. I thought that um, Joel Campbell would play ahead of Theo, um, just because you know Walcott's played every game since he came back from injury. And, and, I, it, I and isn't it interesting, Tim, on that point? Sorry, um, just to jump back in. But the last three or four times Theo's played, he's pretty much played all ninety, and we've seen his defensive abilities. You know, he's really getting into it. It's almost like he's getting a taste for it where Arson is now starting to trust him on the and and he was switched to the right wing with Bellerin um uh, against Bournemouth so um or at least for big chunks of the game and he's been used in all three front positions so when Giroud came off he moved to the center forward it's it's kind of a step up on that other side of his game in terms of now, maybe I'm reading too much into it because we were a couple of goals ahead against Bournemouth and it was only Bournemouth. But I'd like to think he's now establishing that he has a a full game that Arson can lean on, or at least enough of a full game. So I thought that was very interesting in terms of the choices the manager then made, not only for the four, but also for the subs against Bournemouth. Sorry, sorry Tim. That yeah. Theo Walcott praising segment is brought to you by Red Bull. Red Bull gives you wings. Look for more Paul praising Theo segments on additional Ars- uh, what are we? Arsenal Vision podcasts in the future. Sorry, go ahead, Tim. Uh, yeah, I mean, with, with Theo, again, this is something I've, I've written about um, uh, kind of coming up just to give you another plug. Um, but the <laughs> thing is with, with Theo at the moment is that I think that it's not just that defensively he's improved, and he has, and I think it's probably worked out why he got frozen out of the side at the end of last season. But 
also I think, um, and we were talking about this on a previous podcast, it, his inclusion doesn't carry the same technical and physical deficiencies it once did. Yeah. So once upon a time, you put Theo Walcott in the team and you say, well, he can't pass the ball. He's probably going to clump the ball into orbit four or five times and he's going to make <laughs> you think, how is this guy a professional footballer? But he might score you a goal. Um, or make you, he'll do at least one of those things in one moment. Whereas actually now, technically he's much better, he's much stronger, he's much more willing to get back, which is why he gets 90 minutes more often because he's he's kind of rounded off his game quite nicely. Even if he's occasionally still quite peripheral, he's, he's a lot more efficient. Um, the Gabriel Koscielny I thought made perfect sense just because Koscielny and Shane Long was... You know, a bit of a ding dong, really. Um, and Shane Long, you know, he's physical, he runs a lot, and it was Koscielny having to cope with most of that. Um, and I think it was just physically a tough game for him. Gibbs for Monreal, I think it's just because it's a change we can make. I don't think there was much more thinking behind that than that. Um, and Chambers for Flamini, I think I completely anticipated just because, you know, Flamini only just passed the fitness test to play Man City. And then when we brought him on for the last 15 minutes against Southampton, that, that was very obviously, you know, a trial of sorts or just to give him some time. Um, How do you think he did? He was planning to play him. I, I thought we did very, very well. I thought we did very well when he came on against Southampton. And in fact, I looked at him and I kind of thought, you know, maybe he should have been on a bit earlier because mm. of his ability to carry the ball a bit um, and to pass it. Um but then again, you know, he, he didn't have a great game there last season, in fairness. Yeah, at was, right back. Are you, are you willing to... Oh, uh, he was in midfield against oh, Southampton. No, that's right. I'm sorry, I was thinking about Swansea. Swansea, where he yeah. Got, uh, yeah. A bit of roasting. Um, well, are you prepared, based on the back of a a game against Bournemouth at home after they had played two days earlier, to say that he immediately jumps ahead of Flamini for you? Depends as, on the game. Yeah. Depends totally on the game. Um, I thought Flamini was excellent against Man City. I mean, if you've got a game like that, then I'd go with Flamini. Um, maybe for a home game like Newcastle, um, I'd maybe stick with Chambers for Newcastle. I'd definitely look at look at him in the cup game as well there. Um, you know, because he's, he's more of a distributor and, you know, he's not hugely quick, but he reads the game very well. I, I'd be tempted for that type of game, but for the for the kind of tougher games where we're going to spend a lot less time with the ball, I'd still, I'd still go with Flamini. So, well, Paul, I'm curious to get your opinion on this. I mean, I, I think I'm prepared to go with anyone but Flamini. Um, see, he, here's the problem for me. I think, like, we're so... We have post-traumatic stress disorder when it comes to defensive midfield position, and we're so desperate for a defensive midfielder that if the guy is just, like, roughly in a good defensive position for most of the game, we're like, he's the greatest. Let's use him every game. But the truth is I don't think any team can play, and certainly not the way Arsenal want to play, unless every midfielder is capable of being in position to receive the ball, can receive the ball, and can distribute the ball. Um I know that sounds pretty obvious, but but I don't think it always is obvious. I think when Coughlin first came into the side, we had a little bit of a challenge because he didn't find the space to make himself available to Cazorla. He didn't want to receive the ball. They didn't want to give him the ball. And I thought he grew into the confidence to find those pockets of space, step up when he needed to. He was so concentrated on being defensive. And then I think he started to grow and add, and add back some of that technical capability that he has in his game. Um, 
I just don't see Flamini having the mobility um, or the technical skill in distributing the ball to really contribute to the midfield. And I worry, as long as you have Ramsey in central midfield, your defensive midfielder is going to have to cover a lot of space. Yeah. A lot of space. And and Chambers can cover space that Flamini doesn't. So, I mean, for you... Is is do you want to see more of Chambers there? Are you still you still yeah, no, holding on to yeah, the Flamini no, I, three? No, no. Uh, well, don't paint me too much into the no, Flamini No, I'm corner. asking. I'm asking. Um, yeah, yeah. I, no. I didn't mean that you were. I'm just saying, is that your preference? <laughs> so, I uh, definitely want to see more Chambers. I uh, liked what I saw so, so so far, particularly the Bournemouth game. Obviously, he had a little bit of space to work with, um, but the couple of times they pressed him, he did really well in in tight corners and. Uh, good, good ball skills, and um, so I thought that was really promising. Um, there were a couple of times he maybe took a slightly too big touch, but it didn't cost him anything. So, uh, but it, you know, it was his first game at at the big desk. So, uh, hopefully, he'll tighten that up, and I can see the manager not wanting to drop him straight in it. Um, I agree with Tim. You know, Newcastle at home could be a good venue for him to to start to to get his feet under the table a bit. I do think with Flamini, I mean, I, I think it would be harsh to label all those criticisms at him. I think he's positionally been pretty good. I think he's been very mature. I don't think he has bombed into the box. I don't think he bombed forward. I don't think that was our issue against Southampton at all. But the one slight against him... Uh, I mentioned it earlier, time and time again, I think he showed in the right position and was in the right position, and the players chose not to distribute through him, which probably tells us what we need to know in terms of their confidence that he was going to add to the uh, passing progression as opposed to subtract it. So, as you say, for a team like Arsenal, uh, at a DM position, we need more than a guy who's basically trying to cover our ass and our ass was really hanging out and he couldn't cover it. I I don't think it was particularly his fault on the day defensively, uh, except in that in not being able to assist our build-up, that comes back to bite you five seconds later. And I think that's maybe where Flamini caused us on the day. But in terms of his basic DMing as opposed to distribution, I think he did all right. So, yeah, I definitely want to see Flamini. Um, or, sorry, I definitely want Chambers. to see Chambers. Mm-hmm. It'll be very interesting if Chambers has a, a few good games here in the middle of January if Arson starts to change his tone on the window and solutions internally. It won't completely shock me. The rest of you will be classed clasping your chests but i'm all prepared for arson saying words about internal solutions if chambers I, has a few good games I would, here i would kill myself i know you would um <laughs> I, but uh, i do have a quick question for for the two of you though um you sure elliot we talked in the past about gabrielle and pace and stuff and i think you you'd pretty much said you hadn't quite seen enough of them to work out you, you're a bit skeptical on his pace but you hadn't seen quite enough of them what yeah. do you think of his performance generally yesterday? Uh, to me, it was like one of his best. And also the thing with the headers on the corners, was that just the way the corners fell? or is it? Are, well, they were, the, 
the delivery was great, and the Bournemouth marking was really poor. Yeah. I don't know what was going on, but we looked threatening on every corner kick. Um, obviously, I loved him scoring the goal, and, and I, it's not that I don't like Gabriel. My biggest concern with him has been that I think he gets that rush of blood to the head sure. where he wants to go to ground to make a tackle. He wants to, he wants to be physical, and so I think he's going to pick up cards and occasionally, you know, potentially have that risk of giving away a penalty or missing a tackle and being on his butt while the play is continuing behind him. I thought he played well against Bournemouth. To be fair, they got him behind us quite a bit. Um, I don't know that Murtisacker covered himself in glory a lot, and he's had some uneven performances. I think when we defend deep, he still organizes as well as anyone, tackles as well as anyone, um, and cleans up as well as anyone. I think when we are going to be higher up the pitch, he he's really increasingly become a liability. Sure, though, um, getting in behind has very little to do with the center backs. It's everything to do with, as you talked about, the pressing and the midfield and the control of the game. I think that's right, but what I think we see him do sometimes, Paul, is I think sometimes he opts to take that step forward because he knows if he takes that step sure. back, he can't win a foot race. So I think it creeps into your your mindset of how you're going to defend when you know you're going to get beaten for pace. Um, plus, I don't think you put as much pressure on the ball to be as good when you know you can have a four-yard head start and still run past the center back, which you can't do to Koscielny or Gabriel. Um it, look, in general, I, I think Gabriel did just fine against Bournemouth, and I think he will grow into being an important player for us. It certainly raises the question with Chambers, because if we are buying a defensive midfielder and we have Coughlin, and now we have three good choices at center back, you kind of wonder where Chambers' future is at the club in general, if he's going to be willing to be third and fourth choice for all his positions. Um, but Tim, you know, one of the things... All right, so I, I want to ask about transfers, and I want to ask about where the season is going, but we have to talk about Mesut Ozil just really quickly. So I'll give you... The, uh, the shot to, to discuss him. He, he's really carrying the team now. So two things. First of all, on the po- positive side, what do you see in his game specifically that you think has made the difference in his performances? And then on the other side of the coin, how important is it that we find some places to get him some rest? Because we're clearly depending on him immensely at this point. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the difference in him, I think it's just like, you know, it's a mental thing that he feels comfortable with the team. It's kind of a physical thing. And uh, and again, because I was kind of writing about this today, um, the, the other thing that I've noticed from his last few assists as well is the second he gets the ball, everybody comes to life. You look at that Giroud goal against Manchester City, and um, I actually, uh, you know, I was, I was doing, basically I wanted to put some images in the article, and I was doing some stills of what, um, our attackers look like while the play is going on, and then ha- what they look like when when Urzil gets the ball. And the, the best example I found was Campbell's goal against Sunderland. Um, when the move starts, Campbell is just standing offside, out by the touchline, you know, gazing into space. And then two seconds later, <laughs> I stopped the frame when Urzil got the ball, and like the, the life that went into him, he all of a sudden he broke his neck to get back on side, and then make the run, and uh, yeah, Giroud's goal against Man City, you haven't just got Giroud, you've got Ramsey running into the middle, it's like the second he gets the ball, that whole team just comes to life, because they know if they make a run, he's going to find them, and what I find really amusing is that even if they don't make a run, he'll just put the ball into space anyway, and that kept happening with Theo last night, where like, Ozil sees the space before the striker does, and he puts the ball into the space, and then the striker's like, oh, yeah, there's all that space there. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't appreciated that yet. Thanks. Like, he's, hmm. 
he's actually usually a good creative player. It's like the striker screams for the ball. And, you know, the, the, the player lays it on with Ozil. It's like Ozil lays the ball on and the striker goes, oh, yeah, there's the space. And um, when you look at how good Ozil is at finding space himself um, to receive the ball, it's perhaps not surprising that he's got a brilliant appreciation of exactly where to put the ball. Mm -hmm. um, as for how important it is we get him rest, like, yeah, I think it's becoming very important. Um, we know he didn't really train much in the build-up to the City game. Um, I think I think we owe Germany a, a big thank you, by the way, for resting yeah. in the last international break. Yeah, and weren't there rumours that he wasn't really training because of a slight tightness in his calf and mm. stuff like that? And he was um, ill, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, because we absolutely just cannot, cannot lose him um, at the moment. And I, I, was, I was listening to the Askcast Extra today and someone asked the question, it's the Champions League final and you can only have one of Ozil or Alexis. Who is it? It's a great question. Ozil. Um, but exactly, <laughs> exactly. I was just like, look, Alexis, in my mind, Alexis can score a goal for himself out of nothing, which is a tremendous kind of boon to have. But, but Ozil, Ozil can make that lump Giroud look like he's scoring goals. Exactly. And, that, Ozil, and that's something. Ozil can make <laughs> anybody else score, even including the centre-halves from corners. Like, you know, Alexis is on the pitch. There's a good chance he's going to score. Ozil's on the pitch. There's six or seven players who, if they get in the right space at the right time, are going to score. Um, and, and I think that Sunderland game in the cup, I think we've got to be looking at that to to leave him on the bench. And that's tough because it's tough to see who can come in. But I I would almost double bluff because I think that Allardyce is not going to be interested in that cup game at all. And I think we'll see a reserve side from Sunderland. And maybe it's just one where we've got Liverpool away straight after and Stoke away straight after. Maybe it's one where we've got to play a bit of a, a double bluff and have a bit of a gamble and, you know, have him on the bench. But um, And I, I think Alexis was due back just after that. So I, I think that's where you've got to be looking, um, but certainly not before. Um, because there's, there's just so much on him at the moment, um, particularly creatively. Can can we get away with it, home to yeah. Newcastle with big games coming up and then another break in the cup, or is that asking too much? No, I think that's asking too much at the moment. And I'm also of the opinion that if someone's playing well, you kind of try and keep them playing as well. Yeah, I, there are a lot of players I'd like to keep playing. It's just that their legs keep falling off. Um, uh, Paul, as far as Ozil's performance lately, I mean, it really has been the difference for us. Um, I mean, obviously not against Southampton, but he, he's he's gone up another level, but I, I think he's also sort of dragging the forwards up another level with him. So I'll ask you a, a positive question veiled in negativity or the other way around. The assist pace he's on, testament to underrated forwards or should be double that, but the forwards, we need better forwards to take advantage of his tremendous service. I mean, he's created, what, 78 or 76 chances this season, he had he created what eight chances against Bournemouth alone, uh, and and we only scored two goals. So, I mean, do we need to get him even more firepower up front to to take advantage of this? Yeah, I mean, uh, you upgrade anywhere you can around somebody like Ozil. I mean, he's certifiably world class, and there aren't too many other world class players on that pitch. Theo should have scored probably two against Bournemouth. 
he had three or four can't misses. Of course, you can miss them. Uh, you know, on an average day, you should have scored one. On a reasonably informed day, you should have scored two. Um, you know, they're meant for each other, but Theo needs to start burying a few. Uh, but hopefully he will. I mean, we've yet to see Theo score a hat-trick, and he absolutely has a hat-trick within him. We've seen seen that in the past, so I'm hoping Theo lights it up soon. But what's really struck me with Ozil is that, uh, and I think we've all seen this, you, you see it in terms of body language and in every aspect. He, he's bringing it every single game. He's, you know, in American terms, he's he's a franchise player. He is he is now the Jordan of this team. I don't think it's even close between him and Alexis, and I love Alexis. Um, you know, everything, when Ozil's ticking, and he's pretty much always ticking, the team ticks. Uh, it, it works off his heartbeat now. And uh, the other thing, you get the sense that he was kind of a bit of a boy, a bit of a kid. Certainly at Real Madrid, he was the kid. And for us, for the first couple of seasons, he was a bit sulky if things weren't going his way or whatever. Didn't mean he didn't play well. Didn't mean he didn't knock the ball about. And we discuss about leaders, and we would always kind of say, we'd put him in his own little class. He can lead by playing well, but he's not a leader. Well, now he is. I mean, you can see he's more man than boy now. Uh, you see it uh, physically, uh, his body language. You see him, wasn't he trying to pick a fight with uh, whatever his name was, Classy, after they clashed in the uh, South Yeah, he Africa. got some rough treatment in that match. He yeah. did. And I think I saw him gesturing to him to uh, to do something. I think it was the I'll see you. I'll, meet, the I'll meet you after school, yeah. Yeah, I'll meet you in the tunnel at half time. Uh, most unlike Ozil, uh, or I guess my picture of Ozil from the first year or two. I mean, the guy has really come up major notches, and I'm not even talking about just pure football-wise. Um, and I think it's really interesting, you know, two and a half years into his stay with this, Wenger finally makes the Bergkamp comparison. And I don't think that's any coincidence. I think he might have thought it many times before, but now he thinks to put that cloak around Ozil's shoulders, you know, Ozil isn't going to go squirrely on him in a month or two because he's come up that step. He talked about uh, Ozil during the summer about settling in in London and how it's difficult for players. I think Ozil was really struggling to find his feet and to kind of feel at home uh, on the pitch and in London for some period of time. And it's all really clicking this season. I hear what you're saying about resting him and stuff. The only thing I'd... Well, uh, and I don't contradict that, but I do marvel at how... He's played basically the whole season, and he doesn't look tired. I mean, he may have had these niggles and these concerns, and they may be resting him in training, but I'm amazed to this point, the energy he brings to every game. Not only is everybody else sparking when he gets the ball, I mean, he's just coming alive all over the pitch, working hard, tracking back. I've been amazed by him, and I expected good things this season. I I have to pick you up on one point of order. Um, Theo Walcott, off the top of my head, has three Arsenal hat-tricks. Blackpool, Reading in the Capital One Cup, and Newcastle when we won 7-3. And Croatia. Well, that's for England, yeah. Nah, England-Arsenal. What's the difference? <laughs> um, okay. So, but, so, uh, so, Tim, my only point was he needs to score three off Ozil now. Yeah. 
Not, yeah. not that he hasn't done it in the past. Uh, I think well, yeah, I was yeah. trying he to say he, against Bournemouth. Yeah, he has it within his his uh, his bag to do it because he's done it in the past. We just haven't seen it yet in recent times. Uh, Definitely. In fact, he hasn't really been he hasn't really hit a scoring stride this year. I know he scored a few, and I mean, he's I like what he's doing. In the Premier League. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm expecting big things. To your point, Elliot, he deserves better. He can get more. He's he's getting quite a lot out of Giroud. He's not getting that much out of Theo goals-wise, even though I think it works generally in terms of that front two, three when you've got Giroud and, and Theo. So I think Giroud's struggling a little bit right now to figure out what, what to do in open play. I mean, I, I know he's he's been in decent goal scoring for him, and that's what's important for your striker. But And maybe, Tim, do you agree with this? I mean... Watching Giroud like I do because he's a player that I have a lot of intense interest in because I've always been a skeptic of his, but I've been trying to come around, you know, when he scores goals and you say, you know, maybe there's there's more class there than I realize. But I see a player who's still sort of struggling to to know how to influence the match with our current setup. I mean, how do you, how do you think he's been an open play? Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly see. I, I think the thing is what he's started to do um, is he's starting to move off into wide positions, which... Um, Michael Cox wrote a very, very good piece about this. Well, because, we're overloading wide positions as our strategy now. Is well, that kind of what we're doing? The thing is, when Giroud stays in the centre, he's always getting double marked. So I think he's been told to shift a little bit wider, not to the wing necessarily, but between centre-half and full-back. Channels. And basically, yeah, either he either gets space or he drags the centre-half out. It's kind of win-win. Um, and, you know, that's that's something quite new for him. Um, and that's the exact position he ran into for for his goal against Manchester City. Hmm. Um, so I, I think there's an, an adaption going on there. Certainly, it's been going on probably for a couple of months. I think when he got in that funk at the beginning of the season, I, the way I read it is probably Wenger kind of sat down with him and said, well, look, these are the things you've got to do to score more you're always going to you know be good in the air you're always going to be dangerous from set pieces and things but um you know every, most teams well other than Bournemouth clearly have worked out your kind of the area and they just don't let you do that anymore um so you're going to have to go and find space um I think the thing uh, and I probably echo Paul here and that I'm I'm not really worried about Walcott missing those chances against Bournemouth with Theo for me it's always that kind of cliche being the position because I I know full well that Theo Walcott bless him will absolutely not think a second thing about last night whatsoever it will not play on his mind at all he'll probably oh like, he'll take seven shots the very next match he doesn't yeah he'll just go like, <laughs> oh well I missed a couple but you know we won so you know and sleep soundly in his bed um, Giroud's the opposite yeah. exactly which is a, a great quality for a striker to have so with Theo I think it's much more of a, a motor thing like get in those positions and eventually he'll hit his stride and a lot of it with him is based on fitness as well once he gets a few games under his belt he, he tends to hit his stride quite nicely so as long as he's getting those chances um, I, I don't think it affects him in the absolute slightest uh, missing chances like that especially if we win the game I, I don't think he'll think a thing of it he'll just think Right, I've got to keep making those runs, and, and it yeah. will come off at some stage. Uh, yeah, I, and can I just add quickly? Ahead, uh, yep, I've been go impressed ahead. as well how physical he's. He's not only covering back, and we've seen him kind of nipping back and stealing the ball off somebody's toe, but he's getting very physical in the challenges. Or when he gets taken down, he rolls and hops up again. Where you can see he's now 
trusting his body and feeling very comfortable that he's strong and, you know, that maybe the ACL stuff is behind him and an ankle and this and that. So I hope that's all going to come together now. We could see a nice little run from Theo once he kind of gets a few goals in because I think he's feeling very confident in his body like he hasn't done for a long time. I think the challenge for us right now is is that we are a new team than we were three months ago. I mean, think about this for a second. The first part of the season was really Alexis, Walcott, Ramsey on the right, Kazorla, Coughlin, Ozil in midfield. And we had a dynamic, movement-oriented, pace-oriented center forward, a dribbly, uh, explosive winger, and then uh, a midfielder, cum right winger, who was coming infield to add that extra body in midfield when we were in possession so we could keep the ball and who could also cover back defensively but wasn't necessarily going to give us the width on the right. Now we're playing with two true wide players up front, a target man center forward, a box-to-box midfielder next to a relatively immobile other midfielder, and the only consistent part there is Ozil. And it really is a totally different way of playing. Um, I, and, someone and tweeted. Elliot, we had said there were four essential players. Back to that that old meme of ours, where we said Santi, Coughlin, Alexis, and Ozil. <laughs> yeah, and yet we're hanging in there. So anyway, yeah, no, I I agree. I, I think it's it's impressive that we're where we are given the injuries we've had. I think the challenge, though, is I'm not convinced that we can be successful long term with this setup with these players. Um, and, you know, someone tweeted the other day, and I really agree with it. They said Ramsey looks like so much of a better player when he's in the final third than he does when he's further back. And I think that might have been part of the reason why Wenger wanted to deploy him on the right was so we could add that extra possession-oriented player to come in mid- to midfield, but also because it puts Ramsey in the part of the pitch where he can be most effective and takes him a little bit out of the firing line of that deeper position where he can be a little loose with the ball or occasionally just a little reckless. Um, so... Let, let me let me ask you this first. We're going to talk transfers just really, really quickly. Um, but before we do, Tim, I was in a coma for all of the 2014-2015 season. The last thing I remember is the disappointing finish. Forget the FA Cup. The disappointing league finish to the 2013-14 season. Going into the new year, we were a point ahead of City. We had a really strong goal difference. And spirits were high. We know what happened from there. Some thrashings away scraping fourth place, not a good end of the season. Now that I'm awake from my coma and I'm looking at the table and I'm looking at everybody saying this is the year we win the title, there's a part of me thinking, didn't I just live this? Why is this different from 2013-2014? Purely and simply because we have better players, we have a better squad. That team was very, very reliant on three to four players, um, three of whom we lost through injury. Um... And I, I don't think that's the case at all this time. In fact, we've lost three very key players to injury and we're, we're still up there. I mean, do you, just real um, quick, do you genuinely believe that when we're using like Flamini and Joel Campbell regularly that we really have a better squad than what we were left with that season? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I okay. think we we're, were still using Flamini then. Um, in fact, he was higher up the pecking <laughs> order. Um, and I, I don't think we had a Joel Campbell even in the squad that I can think of. Fair. Um, considering he's like fifth or sixth choice. Um, so I, I think that was very dependent on a few a few players. I think also we we hit a bit of a streak at the beginning of that season. Um, not quite Leicester standard, um, but 
I, I think uh, 7 a.m. kickoff did some good stuff around this at the time. He was looking at, you know, shots per goal and stuff like that. And he was saying, basically, we were kind of overachieving in terms of Yeah, I know of the results. underlying metrics say we're better now than we were then. Like the yeah, expected goals, yeah. chances created, all that. And and actually, we, we did hit, you know, a bit of a streak where things were going for us and the Ozil signing happened and everyone really relaxed and, you know, and but... I, I think that was a little bit superficial when we were top of the league. And I really thought that. Like, I I remember thinking, I, I predicted I think we would finish third. And I still felt that when we were top of the league. This time, you know, I, I think we're definitely in it for real. I think we have a deeper squad. I think we have a more mature squad. Um, we have a lot of those players still. Um, but they're all two years older. Um, and a little bit wiser. They're all physically stronger, I think, in challenges and the rest of it. Um, the, the kind of, I suppose, the warning note is that we still have to go to Old Trafford, to the Etihad, to White Hart Lane, to Anfield, to Stoke, where we don't generally fare very well, to Goodison Park. We've got some tough games ahead. Um, but I think five of our next eight are at home. I, I think the home form is going to be huge here because City as well are... are they haven't won for over three months away from home. So I really think it's going to be for both teams about about home form. Um, and I'm I'm quite confident in ours, um, to be honest. So okay. I, I, I think it, it kind of feels different as well. Um, that said, if a team comes along and does like a Liverpool-style run um, and wins, you know, something insane like 15 out of 17 or something... Well, they're going to win it, yeah. Anyway, yeah, does if Liverpool do that again, <laughs> that it will be enough for them, um, I think, to win it. Whereas Man City were, you know, not brilliant, but just solid enough to kind of hold them off. Um, whereas this time, I, I don't think any team um, would be solid enough to hold off like a run like that. But um, I do think it's different this time. I, I think we're, we're more rounded. Um, I just think we need to, A, work on what the hell we do when we go a goal down and how we kind of work out these teams that come and press us very hard because every team's going to do it to us now. I think yeah, the only and, and, thing the two ahead. teams have in common this season and two seasons ago is the name of the team. Honestly, uh, it, it for me, it's a comparison. I mean, there have always been teams that had a really good start and then trailed off. There have been teams. Well, all right, but so then why aren't we going to trail? I mean, let me just give it to you this way, okay? Right now we're on pace for, I know on pace doesn't work that way, but we're on pace for 78 points. That would be fewer points than we had that season. I don't think anyone is winning the Premier League. Well, maybe this season someone is winning the Premier League with 78 points. It would be a low total. Um, we're missing a lot of key players. We've totally reshaped not just the players we're using. The thing that worries me, Paul, is we've reshaped how we're playing. A two-man midfield with Ramsey and Flamini, for me, can't win the title if we have to do that for an extended period. Tell me why that's not the case. Well, they could win it. I mean, we're going to win probably, with a bit of luck at Newcastle, three out of four games here. Um, we're going to be top of the league, uh, hopefully. After Can we win away, game. those big away games, with, Ram, with Ramsey, Flamini, two-man no. midfield? I mean, we're going to struggle yeah. against the biggest teams, but we may still City away enough. is the second-to-last game of the season, and I know we're going to have a two-point lead at the top of the table going into that just because I want a pacemaker at this age. Like, I mean... Yeah, but that gives you a lot of time from an injury standpoint. So that's Well, yeah, you thing. could have Coughlin and Cazorla you by could then. well yeah. do. So, and... 
you know, while you're asking me what, why is this going to be different this year, it still all comes down to injuries. If we can stay reasonably healthy uh, uh, from here on in, if we can get some players back. But if we can't, then we're fucked. I mean, there's no magic here. We're good enough if we keep enough players healthy. And unless City go on a mad rush of winning every game they play, we're good enough to win this, even if for most of that time it's a Flamini Ramsey go-to. Um, you know, it'll be touch and go if we, if we can't improve about, uh, on that as a central mid partnership is just about good enough to keep us in the shake. Okay. Um, but we either Chambers needs to step up or we need to buy somebody or Cockland needs to get back quick so that we it's can a end good with transition. Yeah. Let's go not ahead. Go ahead, Tim. That, uh, in, you know, in terms of keeping players healthy and the rest of it. Yeah, we certainly do, especially now, but let's not forget that um, Vincent company can't play 60 minutes at the moment without getting injured mm. and City have got a fairly shaky uh, well I think they're good centre-halves but they're not really accustomed to one another yet and you know Sergio Aguero is looking increasingly fragile you know that old question can Arsenal win the league with Giroud up front well the question might be can City win it with Wilfred Bonny up front um, so they, they I mean they probably... have the luxury of Sterling and De Bruyne and they no, do, but we have yeah, the luxury yeah. of Ozil and Alexis. Oh, yeah, of um, course. Yeah. So, yeah. That's I, no. just two of their, what I call, fulcrum players are, are also missing, um, which could potentially even things up a little bit on that score. Uh, so, well, all right, so let me ask this. And by the way, I don't think we can't win the title. I, I think we absolutely can. I think we're certainly favorites or co-favorites for it with City. I just think there are things I see about how we play with the Alexis Flamini axis in midfield that are reminiscent of when we were very easy to press and counter, press and counter. If we get dispossessed, it's too easy to create quality chances against us. Whereas when I thought when we were playing with Coughlin and Cazorla and Ramsey coming into midfield, we were better in possession and we were more stable when we lost possession. You're a worrier, Elliot. You're a worrier. That's why my friends call me whiskers. Um, So let's finish on this, Tim, real quick. Let's assume for a minute that El Nenny is coming. I don't think you can ever do that with transfers, but let's assume he's coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the reports seem to be pretty widespread that the medical's done, that he's done, that it's signed. I mean, first of all, I'll give you. Do you believe he's coming? Yeah, yeah. I, okay. I definitely seems that way, yeah. Okay. So then, do you think he comes right into the side? And, I mean, I'm not asking you for a scouting report on him because I'm not mm. going to pretend I know anything about him. I doubt you know much more than what you've seen on mm. the internet or the odd game here or there. Do you think he's being bought to plug a Coughlin-shaped hole immediately. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, I think he'll go straight into the squad, and within a couple of games, I think he'll probably be um, a prominent figure in the team. The, there are kind of there are a couple of things um, with this guy. I, I don't think from memory I've ever seen him play, and if I have, I don't remember it. But um, A, he's just come off a winter break, um, that they have in Switzerland. Um, As opposed to our last midfield degrees. signing in January, who was coming off a back break. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Exactly. Um, he's just been sunning himself in Egypt uh, during the winter break, so he should be kind of nice and fresh. Um, the other thing, and you know, I know the Swiss league is, is a different prospect to the Premier League, this guy's won the league title in the last three seasons, um, and that might be quite handy 
uh, for us to have somebody of that experience, albeit not in a comfortable league. Um, he, he looks like a nice kind of profile of player. I think that he's probably been bought with a view to the fact that one or both of Arteta and Flamini will go. And, you know, worst case scenario in the long term, Coquelin comes back and he becomes the understudy. Best case scenario, he really, really impresses. He progresses with us and, you know, becomes this kind of, from what I've read about him, he's more in the controlling mould, shall we say more of a passer and seems to have a good shot on him as well, actually. Then maybe, maybe a Cazorla replacement as much yeah, as anything. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, I, I've been told he's more, you know, in the kind of Manu Petit, Edu, albeit right-footed kind of mould, um, which, which is what I wanted personally. He'd be cup-tied, got... wouldn't he, for the Champions League? No. Uh, I don't I don't know. Wasn't Basel in the group stage? I'm uh... shocked. If they, they must have been, right? I've got a feeling they they were in the Europa League that they did, they didn't win their qualifier. Um, oh, interesting. Okay, not. well that would be great news. Um, um, yeah. So uh, let, let's move on because we're almost hitting the hour mark, and I kind of like to stop there because most people have turned it off by twenty minutes. Um, uh, Paul, real quick, your thoughts on El Nani coming? You seem a little more skeptical. You you think it could still be paper talk? No, it's more as I said. I've I've been. All- almost off Twitter. You know that thing where you say I've been off Twitter and then you you go back and you check and you still got like 20 tweets every day. Anyway, I've been yeah. I've been off Twitter. I haven't really so I've I've been seeing the rumors, but I couldn't tell the difference between this and say a Jackson Martinez rumor apart from one or two people who I know and respect yeah. seem this to This is being sort of time. widely reported yeah. as done, medical done, contract done by people yeah. that usually don't just sort of chase the rumors. But, I mean, is this for you something we had to do in the short term? I mean, I don't think Wenger ever panic buys a guy he doesn't really want. So maybe a guy we looked at in the summer and didn't get the deal done. So isn't it interesting that in the season where we really can win this thing and we really are screwed for a DM, Arson really can buy one in the January window when nobody's ever available. Can, can I make a quick point, though? Just something that I want to get off my chest. I was really aggravated that we didn't buy anyone in the summer. You guys know that. It's not like I hid that. I just want I, I, look, to apologize to everybody for pulling the pin out of this grenade. Just, just, just for a second, and then I'll move on really quick. But, like, I got told a lot. You couldn't buy anyone in the summer because there wasn't anybody world-class available and only world-class would improve the team. And, you know, we, we're looking at players who play for Real Madrid and Bayern Munich, and those guys aren't easy to buy. And so you can't just expect those deals to happen. And then all of a sudden, oh, no, it's actually a 5 million euro guy from Basel who's going to make the difference. Like, maybe he is going to make the difference. But, like, surely we could have gotten a deal like that done. I mean, you guys, am I wrong? Does this sort of put the lie to the, the argument that we couldn't buy anyone because – it's only 50 million pound players that make a difference for us now. Lie is such a harsh word. <laughs> well, all right. I mean, I mean, Tim, back me up here. I'm not crazy, right? Like, no, like no, this no. proves that you can buy, you can make a sensible, affordable purchase of a player that you think has quality, and that player can potentially be a really important part of bolstering your squad for a title challenge. Yeah, definitely. And and really, what can how many have done this season? I, you know, I might be completely wrong. He might have really come into his own, but. Has he really done anything in the like last three months? Because I, I could understand stand it with Gabriel, right? Gabriel wasn't even in the Villarreal team, um, like summer of 2014. That really was a kind of 
you know, up and coming and we've got an on an upward trajectory. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if it's the same with this guy. That said, I, I just think that in this position and up front, Benga's been waiting for his kind of Goldilocks um, kind of, I want, you know, the guy that's just right because I think, you know, these are, these are two positions where even given Copeland's form, I think he would be open to buying a really, really top-class player. Um, but it's just a case of kind of needs must. And uh, you said that Wenger doesn't really do panic buys. I think he does. Um, I think Arshavin was a panic buy. Yeah, that's I fair. Well I, I meant bet. more, I, I don't think he, I can remember a player he bought who I don't think he was at least looking at and considering, you know, where he just literally grabbed well what was ever on the shelf in a, in a panic. I think maybe Welbeck was that player. But oh, that yeah, that's an interesting point. Necessity. Um, Welbeck had a be... feel of that uh, uh, Marlon Brando thing where he's shouting in the ra- rain that he has nowhere else to go. And it was, he, he almost felt like he'd <laughs> driven down to, to Colony and stood outside it saying... Pretty much had. <laughs> yeah, he'd he'd had he'd had the Higuain Suarez yeah. debacle, yeah. and then yeah. and then he had nothing left but Welbeck. I mean, um, uh, Paul, I, I want a forward. Yeah. Do you want a forward? Will we get a forward? Uh, we won't get a forward. I don't want a forward. I want a forward eventually. I want one in the summer. And if there's somebody great uh, in January, I mean, don't get me wrong. If you can get world class, if you can get an upgrade, you take it. I just don't think. Uh, that's going to be too readily available. I don't think we need it. I don't think that's where our problem is. I think if we fix this CM issue, if we can find a partner that makes a Ramsey AN other partnership that really drives out of midfield, you know, I mean, that was always going to be a driver for Wenger to keep looking for another DM uh, unless he thinks Coquelin can get there because I think ultimately, obviously, Ramsey is potentially a world-class midfielder and needs a partner in midfield. So that was a long-term issue that needed to be addressed. Uh, and I'm guessing he thinks this guy's the guy to do that. I think if we, Let's hope so. I think if we have that, <laughs> I, I think if Ozil and strangely Walcott, I know you're not shocked, stay healthy for the rest of this season, I think we win the title. I think Walcott gives us so many options and keeps us dangerous in so many games, even with Alexis back. If you tell me that we generally keep our injury levels within a reasonable range and that we've got Ozil and we've got Walcott, not Alexis, but Walcott, and we get this midfielder, uh, we will win the title. From your lips. Um, Tim, over to you. I'd like a forward. Do you want a forward? Are we getting a forward? I would. I would absolutely love one, but I'm, I'm very much a fool on this one. I, I think we've got what we've got is... Well, at the moment, we've definitely got two, maybe three, if you count Alexis, like very good centre forwards. Um, you know, Welbeck falls into that category, assuming he ever managed. He's to never playing again. Reanimate his legs. Um, I, I think we've got depth in that position, and what we actually need is a, a sprinkling of top quality. Um, I think that. You know, there are a lot of reports that um, this Russian guy that we we really tried to get on deadline day when it became apparent that Welbeck was dead. Karakin <laughs> or whatever? Uh, yeah, yeah. And there's yeah. there's a lot of kind of, they'll wait till the end of the window. And if Welbeck's still dead, they might pull the trigger on that one just to get a body in. But And I could see the sense in that. But really, I think we're looking for 
top class in that position. So I'd like that. I think um, just slightly going back to El Nene very quickly, presuming that's how you pronounce his name. If you look at who the most important players are in this Arsenal team at the moment, now Coquelin and Cazorla have gone. Um, Aaron Rams is one of them. And this signing could be a kind of, um, well, if Aaron Rams is going to be one of our most important players, then we need to buy someone who can play with him. That's and a this great might point. Be a, a way of kind of thinking. Didn't I say that? Well, let, let's give him the materials to, you know, to to really kind of recapture uh, the form he showed. If he can show the, anywhere near the form he showed, kind of in 2013, then that could fire us to the league. Yeah, and the difference, Paul, is that when he said it, I was listening. Um, but the reason I said it was a great point is it made me think of something I want to say that's really intelligent. Um, I think Aaron Ramsey is a very interesting player for us in this respect. He has the ability to be as good as anyone in our team except maybe Ozil. He can be absolutely exceptional. And yet when paired with the wrong partner in midfield, all of his deficiencies can be so apparent that he can be a liability. I think that Ramsey's running, his energy, his drive into the opposition box, his ability to create chances and score chances, although he's missed quite a few lately, I think is something we desperately need and we're short of when Cazorla plays and Coughlin plays. But paired with the wrong midfielder, his looseness with the ball through the center of midfield, his inability to really start the attack effectively, his ability to leave too much space that he can cover behind him gets exposed. So the right partner is crucial, and hopefully this guy will be it. Also, I think we have to pat the club on the back for getting it done early if, in fact, we're doing that. Um, title for you, Tim? Uh, flip a coin. Uh, I have a 16-gigabyte <laughs> micro SD card. Let's see. It came up heads. What does that mean? We win. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> awesome. Good news. Good news, everyone. We win the title. Um, all right, let's leave it there. I, I hope uh, everyone had a great holiday. I uh, wasn't ruined by the Southampton game and was helped significantly by the Bournemouth game. The good news is we sit atop the table at the end of the season. As Tim referenced, we will have an open top bus parade for that a little bit later. But um, there's no question the one thing we forgot to discuss when saying why this is different from 2013-2014 is the chasing pack is not not nearly as strong. Um, and I think it is down to us in City. And uh, let's just hope it's us. So anyway, Paul can be found on Twitter at Pausing in My Pants. Thanks, Paul. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. Tim can be found on uh, uh, Twitter at Stilberto. And I don't know if you heard any of the references. He may not have even made one that he's writing a blog. Did anyone hear that? Heard something about that. Um, that'll be coming out on our blog shortly. And, and you heard all the previews for it here. It sounds like it's going to be a cracker. Thanks, Tim. Read it. Read it. Read it. Uh, yeah, and uh, there's me, the guy who tries to come up with doomy negative scenarios even when we're sitting atop the table. My name is Elliot Smith. Block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Um, I want to wish everyone a safe and happy and healthy new year, um, and thank you for listening to us. And we do appreciate it. The pod continues to evolve, and hopefully uh, we all evolve with it. Um, leave us a review on iTunes if you could. Five stars, please, and then write all the negative stuff in the comments. It's funnier that way. Uh, we will be back after Newcastle which presumably will be a 5-0 victory. And until then, safe, happy, healthy New Year. We'll talk to you. ACAST powers some of the world's best podcasts. 
Here's a show we recommend. In the latest episode of History This Week, we take a closer look at a failed insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building in 1861, when the nation was on the cusp of a civil war. Nearly 160 years later, what can we learn from this moment when democracy was challenged? And check out all our episodes this month as History This Week celebrates Black History Month. Last week, we covered the Greensboro sit-ins that sparked a media firestorm and inspired mass sit-ins across the country. Next week, we travel to Australia and witness Sydney students taking a freedom ride of their own for Aboriginal civil rights. After that, we'll be exploring the origins of jazz. For these stories and more, subscribe to History This Week wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST recommends. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.